Um, super grateful for Tom Vandenberg. Uh, as we were traveling last week, I knew that you guys were going to be opening the scriptures and have just a great teacher. And I was able to listen to part of his message from, um, from last week. Uh, actually, I listened to all of it uh, this last week uh, as we were gone and coming back. And, and I loved some of the stories that I hadn't heard before that Tom shared. So uh, thank you, Tom, for your ministry to our church family. Um, yeah. I also want to echo Tom's uh, comments about next week. Next week, um, Scott DeWitt um, will be here and he will be um, uh, candidating for the position of youth pastor and discipleship pastor. I've really grown to, to know and love and appreciate Scott over the years. Scott's been a part of our church family for many years and serves as a deacon here as well. And I've just really seen him grow in his walk with the Lord, grow in his ability to minister to others. Um, he, he, during this last season of, of life, has been um, our youth ministry coordinator and been helping just pull together a lot of stuff down with student ministry. So encourage you to be here next week for that. And if you have any questions as we arrive to that date, please let us know. Uh, reach out to us uh, here at the office and we'd be happy to answer those for you. Um, Colossians chapter two is where we're going to be. We're going to crack the, the page and go into the second second chapter of the book of Colossians uh, this morning. Get this out of my way so I don't trip. Um, last week, um, we were traveling um, in Arizona. Uh, we were in some place that was a little more sunny uh, and a little bit warmer, not much. We actually left a winter storm warning over there to come to a winter storm warning here on Wednesday night. And we were one of a few flights that actually made it into Grand Rapids Airport on Wednesday night, which means it's, we're so grateful to be home. <laughs> you know, you're like, that plane touches down. You're like, whew. Now we just have to drive home and we're good. Uh, but we had a great time visiting family out in the southwest part of the country and walking in the hills and in the mountains. Um, be between um, our, our family probably hiked about 35 or so miles in the course of the time we were there. My wife and I, we hiked another 10 or so just with extra hikes that we did in the afternoons. And when, when you hike, you, you learn really quickly that every step matters. If you start going in the wrong way, you go, and then you realize it, you go, oh man, I have to retrace my steps. And that matters when you're taking um, kids and a dog on a four or five or six mile hike. But this image of walking is something that's very near and dear to the heart of Paul. In fact, he uses the phrase walking, referring to the Christian life over 30 times in the New Testament. And he uses it in a very important way here that we're going to look at in our passage this morning. Um, and so just think about this. Walking is a, a way of life, a manner of life, a way of going about every moment of every day. Like we would get up and we would have breakfast and we'd go out and hike. It was just a normal part of our day. When you hear walking, don't like make this something that's like, whoa, way out there. No, this is practical everyday Christian living is what Paul is talking about in our passage today. And so I invite you, if you're not there yet, Colossians chapter two, we're gonna read about Paul's struggle and what it means to walk in Christ today. This is his heart for his hearers. And if you're able, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Paul says in Colossians chapter two, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have all the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. Father, would you help us learn what it means to walk in Christ today? Would you reveal to our lives the areas in which we are walking according to the deceptions of the adversary and the deceptions of this world, or we're walking in our own self-sufficiency, God? Would you reveal those to us that we might walk, walk with you every step, 
wholly dependent, but wholly empowered for the work you have given us to do. We thank you, God, that you never leave. You never forsake us. You are always with us. We bless you, God. In the name of Jesus, our Messiah and Lord, we pray. Together we say, amen. Please be seated. So Paul is talking about what it means to walk. And he's saying, I want you to walk in him. The him here is Christ. In fact, one of the things that can be helpful as you read through scripture is to underline like key phrases. And in, at least in my translation, you know, at the end of verse three of chapter two, it says all, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him. Sometimes I like to under, underline the in him because it comes back again, walk in in him. And if you don't know who the him is, you can go back to the end of verse two, God's mystery, Christ, right? So the person that God is calling us to walk in is Jesus, our Messiah. Now, when Paul is writing this letter, he has in mind, of course, the Colossian church. And we've looked at Colossae before. Colossae, Make sure I have my things on here. Colossae is a small town down here in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. It's part of a tri-cities area made up of Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. They're all within a dozen or so miles of each other, some of them closer, some of them farther away. The amazing thing about this is before the time of Jesus, Colossae was the place to be. You can see it's on the river right here, which gave it lots of great fresh water and spring water. Later, what happens though, is they change the, the route of travel. They, they change the highway that goes through. Like last week, we came really, really close to, to Route 66. And you know, Route 66 has some, some towns that once used to be bustling. Kids, you can think like the movie Cars, you know, like Route 66 is all the, the rage. And then the big highway comes through. And what happens to the smaller towns or what happens to the towns that are on that route? They naturally tend to shrink because now you have to walk out of your way in order to go to that city. Back before the first century AD, Colossae was a big city, according to the historians. After um, the, the turn of the first century, around 60 AD, when this letter is being written, just before this letter is written, we have extra biblical writings from Roman historians at the time that say Colossae is a small city. So when we think about Colossae, we, we have to think a once bustling metropolis, a, a once big place that had, its, that had its ability to have power and strength from, from dying wool and from raising sheep. It's, it's a place, here's actually the, the tell of ancient Colossae. It's up against Mount Cadmus, right by the Lycus River. It's in the River Valley. Another photo of, of um, this area that you can just kind of see. This is what it looks like more, more or less today because it's been on excavated. But Colossae is not the only city that Paul is writing to here. The other city that he is writing to is uh, verse one. Uh, he's got this struggle for those in Laodicea, for those who've not seen me in person and for you. So the you is Colossae. Those who haven't seen me in person, he's addressing people who don't know him personally, but he's also saying those in Laodicea. Now, if you remember, Laodicea is not that far away. They're sister cities, if you will. And, but Laodicea is a city that has great history to it. And we looked at this back when we studied the letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 3. Um, Laodicea is a rich city. It is the place to live if you want money. In this Lycus River Valley, um, Earthquakes would happen fairly frequently. And history, historians record how um, after several of the earthquakes that happened around this time in the first century, um, Rome would come in and say, can we help you build up your city again because it's been demolished by this, or by this earthquake. At one point in time, Laodicea said, yes, we need that help. There was a later point in time, though, where they had become so self-sufficient that they told the Roman imperial government, nope. All of the destructions happened. We have more than enough coin in order to make that up. And so here's one of the main uh, thoroughfares of Laodicea. Here's one of the two, one of the two theaters. There's two of them in Laodicea. It's just absolutely spectacular to look at. And you look at this and you go, wow, this is a bustling city. This is not a small city. But as we learned when we studied Revelation chapter three, this city had a problem. They were lukewarm. 
They were lukewarm. And what we learned in that study, and go back to it and, and dig it out if you want in our archives online, what we learned is that these believers in Laodicea were spiritually ineffective. And one of the reasons they were spiritually ineffective was because they were so self-sufficient. So self-sufficient that they became lukewarm. In other words, they became, he says, I wish you were hot or I wish you were cold. And he's not saying like hot is good and cold is bad. He says hot water would be actually therapeutic. Cold water would be actually refreshing. Instead, you're in the middle and it's bleh. They're spiritually ineffective because they have pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. And they've learned to walk the life that God has before them on their own strength. So I think there's a reason that Paul is addressing all of these different groups of people. And I think it comes down to a couple things. The first one is that both of them are, are very open to being deceived. We'll look at that in a couple verses. But the other thing that they are very open to is they're open to walking in their own strength. And I don't know about you, but that idea of walking in my own, in our own strength, that can like write the playbook of the West. Like we're a pretty independent people. I feel this deeply. Like I'm a pretty independent, like I, is, is, like, I, don't, I don't need your help. I just want to do it myself, right? But the way of the Christian walk is not an independent thing. It's a walk that's dependent upon brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and it's dependent most of all upon the Lord, which is what Paul is going to say, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, walk in him. And I think he's coming directly against a lot of the deception and lies that these people believed, that we believe that we can make it in our own power, that we don't need God's power for anything good. Paul describes here in verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. The word struggle in Greek is the word agone. Can you say agone? Agone. You might kind of like, it, it may kind of hit your ears pretty well because it's the word from which we get agony. <laughs> agony or to agonize. It refers to a contest, a race, a struggle against opposition. You could just call it a struggle or you could call it a fight. So Paul, note, is in prison. Okay, he's most likely in a Roman prison awaiting trial with Nero. Scholars debate that a little bit, but that's most likely where he's at. So he is in prison. He's on a light chain. He's ready to go to Caesar at any moment that Caesar calls. And Paul is in agony. He is struggling. He is fighting. Paul has kind of the, um, the prayer request that you would send around the prayer chain all over through the email and through the text and everything like, hey, have you heard about Paul? Paul's in prison. Let's pray for Paul. And we should pray for Paul if we were back then, right? Um, but Paul is in agony. But notice why he is in agony. He says, I want you to know how great a agony, an agone, a struggle I have for you. And the you here is plural. He's thinking about these churches. He's thinking about these believers living in Colossae and in Laodicea, places that are marked by power, that are marked by how can I get my needs met through the medicine of the time and the culture of the time and my own ability to meet my needs. And, and Paul says, I have a struggle for you for you, for those in Laodicea, for all those who have not seen me in person. What is the struggle? Well, it's interesting, this word struggle here, uh, it appears a couple different places in the Bible and actually appears in, in the verb form in the book of Colossians twice. One of those is something you looked at last week. At the end of chapter one, Paul says in verse 29, he says, I labor for this striving Agone, agonizomai is technically the Greek word there, but, but agonizomai with all the strength that works powerfully in me. So part of the context of Paul's struggle 
is, is in view here within this passage. I mean, just the next verse later, Paul's saying, I have this struggle. In verse 29, he's saying, like, I am laboring for you. Because he has said in the previous chapter, I want to present you complete in Christ. I want you to know who you are. I want you to stand in who Christ has made you and what Christ has done to give you life, not just life from the dead, but to give you life here and now. He labors for these believers because he wants them to know this glorious mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The other time it's mentioned is in Colossians chapter 4 in verse um, 12. There it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a slave of Christ Jesus, greets you. He is always agonizing. He's always struggling. He's contending for you. He's fighting for you. How? In his prayers. So I think the other way we can understand Paul's struggle is, but Paul is, number one, he is praying for these believers, right? Earlier in chapter one, I pray that you would be filled um, with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk worthy. He is praying for these believers. That's part of his struggle. Another part of his struggle is that he is in chains. It'd be so tempting to say, you know, it's so much easier to just give this whole Jesus thing up and just go do whatever will give me pleasure right now. But Paul, in the middle of his walk, he remains faithful. I think another part of Paul's struggle, his work, his striving, his contending, is keeping a solid testimony to the believers in Colossae and the believers in Laodicea and all these things. And the last thing that I think Paul is kind of cueing our hearts into is that that Paul desires to teach these people who they are in Christ. Because he doesn't want them to just remain static. He wants them to grow. He wants them to advance. He wants them to step into all that Christ has given them. Because Christ has given them himself. Not just to cleanse their sin, but to give them life in life with great abundance. So so Paul is contending for these believers through prayer, through um, example, and through teaching. Now, he cares about their their walk as a community. Notice verse 2. He says, I want their hearts, all right, he's talking about the community here, I want their hearts to be encouraged, to be encouraged and joined together in love. The idea of encouragement here, you could translate the word comfort or encourage. You could translate it to exhort. Um, One writer puts this word encourage, he defines it this way. He says, enabling a person to meet some difficult situation with confidence and gallantry. He has this heart. He wants to say, you know what? Whatever you are facing today, Christ is with you. Continue. Keep going. You have all you need. And he's telling this to people who are representing Christ in a very ungodly world. Right? Life is not easy for a believer in the first century. Believers in the first century in this area could lose standing. They could lose status. They could lose possessions because of their faith in Christ. He's saying, I'm contending for you. Keep going. Christ has given you himself. He is all you need. But he says, I want your hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love. In other words, he doesn't want them to just be personally encouraged. He wants them to be knit together in such a way, locked together in such a way, joined together in such a way that they are actually stronger together in love than they are by themselves. This word joined together carries with it a a picture of of like a building. Now here's a cornerstone of a building in Jerusalem, I believe is where I pulled this from. Yeah, this is from the temple in Jerusalem. Now I want you to see something here. You see just a bunch of rocks there, maybe a bunch of slabs, maybe you see some distinction between the two. When we highlight it like this, we actually see different slabs that interlock and join together. So when, this is the idea of the word joined here. When Paul says, I want together in love, he, he is referring to, I want them to be built up and interlocked because their witness together 
is stronger than their witness just by themselves. In fact, Jesus had said prior, people will know you are my disciples. How? By the love that you have for one another. And so he cares about how this community um, locks arms, joins hands, gathers together for the cause of Christ in their midst. And what brings them together is not their political ideology or what food they like or what grade they're in or what their age or stage of life is. What brings them together is Jesus. That's always what brings us together. It's really easy in our world to find the things that divide us. But even within the church, we all have, I trust, trust me, we all have different opinions on something, right? We can talk about our favorite kind of coffee, because that's one of my favorite things, and we can debate about what's best there. Uh, we can talk about food. We can talk about where we'd like to travel. We can talk about politics. We can talk about religion. We can talk about all these things, and we could find things that we agree on and things that we disagree on. But the thing that has to bring us together is the body of Christ. The only thing that can bring us together and join us together as the body of Christ is the Lord Jesus. If you have a piece of paper in front of you, maybe this would be a helpful illustration for you. Draw on it a triangle. I don't have this up here for you. This is, this is not up there. Draw a triangle. At the top, write God at that, at that upper fulcrum right there. And then as you come down, write myself and then write everybody else. <laughs> you know, that could be your spouse. That could be a, another significant other. That could be a kid. That could be a coworker. The only the only way that two groups of people, that two groups of people come joined together in full confidence, in full surety, in full strength, is to come to Christ. He is the top part that pulls everything together. And for the church, that is absolutely crucial. Because we may have differences of opinion on something. But if we come to the Lord Jesus and we say, all right, Lord, I want to prefer my brother because love is an action. It's not an emotion. It's a decision. It's an act of the will to bring to bear together all the resources we have to meet the needs of someone else without expecting anything in return. That's what love is. Biblical definition of love, right? You take these two groups of people. What does love look like? It means out of reverence for Christ, I'm going to love them with the love that God wants to love through me because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God because God is love. 1 John chapter 4. What brings these people together is not their difference. And in fact, the way God has made some of them probably causes a little bit of conflict sometimes. But when they turn their eyes to the top of that triangle, they say, all right, all, all right Lord, what do you want me to do? and they're willing to receive, and they're willing to walk in light of that with Christ, it brings the body and it fuses it together with strength that cannot be matched any other way. Paul says, I want your hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that you may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. And then he says, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him. We've looked at this word wisdom before. It's the Greek word Sophia. It refers to the most basic principles of life. It refers to the most basic principles of life. And in Christ, we, we learn that the most basic principles are, of life are able to be lived out and walked out in him, in his grace, in his strength. And so Paul has this great struggle for these believers. He wants them not to just drive on cruise control. He wants them to engage in the Christian life. He wants them to struggle for one another as he struggles for them. Let me ask you a question. Do you struggle for your fellow believers? I don't mean, do you struggle with your fellow believers? I know we all do that. <laughs> I'm saying, do you contend for other people? Do you struggle for them? Where they're at in their walk? Man, I cannot tell you how, how many times I have struggled with people instead of struggling for them. What does it look like to struggle for them? It looks like praying for them. And not just that their arm would feel better or that they would, you know, have a million dollars in their bank account tomorrow or something like that. I, I mean, like, genuinely praying that God would reveal his will to them and that they would have the grace and the power and strength in Christ to walk. That, that God would, 
would remind them how loved they are, how cherished they are, how valuable they are because they are, because they're God's creation. Do you, how do you struggle for people? You pray for them. You give them a model of what it means to follow Christ. A couple weeks ago, I think I told you this, uh, the week before we left on vacation, but I, I got to go visit uh, a member of our church. And before I, I, I left meeting with them just briefly, um, he said, please pray for us. And, and he looked at me and he said, I pray for you every day. Do you know how humbling that is? That someone would take a moment of their every day to intercede to God for me, for my family. How do you struggle for people? I think when we struggle for people, instead of struggling with people, when we go to God and we pray for them and we, we model the Christian life, we model walking in Christ to them, and, and when we appropriately apply and teach God's principles and teachings to them, we give, we build up the body in a way that the body cannot be built up any other way. How do you struggle for people instead of struggling with people? Paul is struggling for these believers from a jail cell, likely in Rome. And in the midst of Paul's struggle, and in the midst of the struggle that the Colossians faces, Paul recognizes two primary areas that affect the church's walk. These two primary areas of attack are areas that the adversary uses against believers today. And they're these, deception or lies, and number two, self-sufficiency or flesh, right? And I don't mean flesh in like the, the like tangible flesh here. I mean flesh in, in the way that Paul uses it in places like Romans. Um, so um, deception or lies and self-sufficiency or flesh are two of the things that Paul is going to pull out of, of this and remind these Colossian believers who they are so that they can walk in light of who they are. This idea of deception goes back a long time. <laughs> deception goes back to Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent entered the garden and he asks Eve and he says, did God really say? Because at the cornerstone of deception is a doubting of the word of God or the revelation of God or the character of God. In the first century, in a Greek and in Roman area, uh, there were people called sophists, all right? Uh, here's a, a statue of a sophist, uh, of a famous orator. This is Cicero from the first century. And back in Paul's day, sophists, one writer describes, were professional rhetoricians whose goal was to win a debate instead of seeking absolute truth. He says their arguments were often clever, but they were fallacious. In other words, they were untrue. In popular thought, they were often associated with moral skepticism and false reasoning. So Paul's addressing something that was well known to the people of the day, because you'd have this person debating this point, this person debating this point, but the point wasn't to come to truth. The point was to win the debate. Have you ever seen this before? <laughs> okay. I hope you have, because it's everywhere. Sometimes it's, yeah, it's everywhere. Um, what he's referring to is so abundant, and it goes beyond whatever network you want to label as fake news today. Um, each of us have areas in our life where we have been, where we have believed the deception of the enemy, where we have believed the lie about what Satan has said instead of what God has said. This affects what we call um, our, our view of God. Many times, um, we all have views of God that are, that are affected by our interactions with people, our, inter our interactions with organizations, our, our readings, and all this kind of stuff. We, we, we have experiences in our life that affect how we see God, and subsequently, we have experiences in life that affect how we see ourselves. In fact, some common lies... Some common lies are things like this. I'm worthless. I'm stupid. I'm unimportant. I'm incompetent. 
I'm powerless, I'm on my own. We believe lies like these in our minds. That's what they are though, they're lies. Thoughts and beliefs then arise from these false uh, or thoughts and actions and emotions arise from these lies that we believe. And many times we actually make decisions in relation to the lies we believe in order to try to meet our needs. And the problem with this is that when we, when we build a house on lies, it just falls apart. And sometimes we don't even know it. Um, there, there was a, there's a report that came out recently that just talked about how the, how the risk and, and the, oh, that's the way I want to phrase it. How there's a greater percentage of people today, especially young people, especially young women who are looking at self-harm much more regularly and considering self-harm more now than they did years ago. And a lot of this stems from they've believed lies about themselves. Things like I'm worthless, things like I'm stupid, things like I can't do, things like no one loves me. But, it, but, but it's not true because they're loved with an everlasting love by God. They're met with unending grace by God. Um, but those aren't the only kind of lies we believe. You could actually flip all those on the other side. Instead of saying I'm worthless, you could say like, wow, look at how great I am. That's also a, a lie if we look at our own performance to measure our greatness. We might think of, oh, look at how smart I am. I can think of anything and fix anything. That can also be a lie that we believe because we are all dependent people. We might think of ourselves as more important than we are or more competent than we are or more powerful than we are. I mean, how many megalomaniacs or people who just like rise on power do we see in the world around us today? The, the, the problem here is that when we believe lies about ourselves instead of the truth of God about who God says we are and who God desires for us to be in him, we then try to cope with these things. And so we might cope with these lies by working harder in order, in order to achieve merit. Now, there's nothing wrong with working hard. But when we work hard so as to find worth in working hard, we've got a little bit backwards. We might become perfectionistic or we might become pleasers. Uh, we might just try to do better or have high, high standards. And we measure our worth by how good we do. Uh, on the flip side, and that may be really good, by the way. Like we may have everything perfect and we go, yeah, I've got every I dot and every T crossed. And we find our identity in that. And we find that at the end that just doesn't leave us very fulfilled. It doesn't leave us very full of the life God desires for us to have. On the other hand, we can also cope with all of these things by being critical of ourselves or others or finding fault or escaping from something. A lot of people turn to addictions in order to cope with lies that they believe about who they are. The only way to address the issue of deception in our world is first we have to get to the root of that deception. Because unless you unearth the lie that you're believing and you replace it with God's truth, what you end up doing is you just end up piling truth on top of a lie and that lie is just kind of seated down there. But when you know the lie, you can say, oh, that, that lie that I believe I am worthless. Hang on a second. As we sang today, I have a maker. He formed my heart before even time began. My life was in his hands. You sing a phrase like that and you exchange the lie that says I am worthless with I have a maker. He knows me. And if he knows me, man, I'm not worthless. I'm actually, oh, God looks at me and he smiles because I've been made in his image. See, we have to learn to replace the lie. And the lie is going to be different for many of us. Like, like some of us will have lies like what I've read. So, some, some will have other lies in your life. But coming down to the root of that lie is absolutely essential for walking in Christ. Because we want to unearth the lie. God wants to unearth that lie to replace it with his truth from his word. And he wants to say, now, would you just walk by faith in response to who you really are. You know, there's, there's a word here that Paul says, we've talked about it already at the book of, beginning of the book of Colossians, where he calls them saints. You know how hard it would have been for, for someone of a pagan background to think of like, wait, I'm a saint? I, I, I'm, I'm actually made holy? 
Like, do you know the life I lived before right now? Because I was involved in all the frat parties and I was involved in all the carousing. And by the way, that was socially acceptable and it was greenlit by everyone. You know how hard it would be to receive that description? But God says, Paul says, through the inspiration of God, he calls these believers saints, holy ones, set apart for the purposes of God. Many of us believe um, I, I believe, many of us believe that God, God can't really use me. If God really knew what is going on in my life, he, there's no way he'd use me. Guess what? He knows every bit about you. <laughs> and he loves you just the same. But he also doesn't want you to stay there. He, he wants you to walk in freedom. He wants you to walk in his truth. Because that's where you and I find life. But it has to come by unearthing the lies that we believe about God and about ourselves and about others and replacing them with God's truth. The other thing that Paul talks about here besides lies, you know, lies are verse four. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments for I'm, I, I may be absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. The other thing he talks about here is, is he talks about um, their self-sufficient efforts. And, and he phrases it this way, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Now notice, he does not say walk for him. He, he doesn't say you're going to get your merit by what you do. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. But let's talk about this for a minute. As you have received, what did the Colossian and the Laodicean believers do to earn God's grace? Nothing. Nothing. Even the reception of it is not an earning of it. Because as Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still sinners, while we were powerless in sin, while we are owned by our sin, our sin owned us, maybe is the best way to say it, Christ died for the ungodly. As they've received it, they, they could never earn God's grace. That's why it's called grace. <laughs> He says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So in that way, he says, I want you to walk in him. In the Christian world, it's not uncommon for us to find uh, in our walks that we walk in order to somehow try to find merit or standing before God. If you go home today with one thing, would you go home with this? You cannot earn merit or standing before God but he has given you merit and standing because you are his child. Would you just rest in that truth? If you are in Christ, God says you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Would you believe that about yourself today? Would you walk knowing that you may struggle with sin, but you, were not, you are not the same person you used to be if you are in Christ? When God looks at you, he looks at you as a son. He looks at you as an adopted child or a daughter. Um, he looks at you as a son or daughter. He looks at you as an adopted child of God. He looks at you as redeemed, um, cleansed from all sin. When he looks at you, he says, oh, you're a part of my family. You, you, you're one of mine. And just know that he delights in you. Take that home with you. Just know God delights in you. And as you then seek to walk, because the walk matters, as you seek to walk, remind yourself constantly with this phrase. Many people actually say that this phrase is pro probably the core of Paul's message in the book of Colossians. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, the free gift of God's grace. Walk in him. Walk in him. As a gift of God's grace. But how are you to walk? Now, interesting, walk here is a second person uh, plural imperative. So they're saying, I want you to walk. I want you to go about your life in him. I, I want your life to be absolutely focused on Christ and everything that you do. But what does it mean? What does it look like to walk in him? In verse seven, we're given three different words, and these are actually passive words here. In other words, these are something that God is going to do in your life as you by faith walk with Christ, right? 
being rooted in, in him, being built up in him, and being established in the faith. All of those are passives. In other words, God is going to do a work in your life as you seek to walk with him. As you come to God tomorrow morning or this afternoon and you say, God, would you reveal to me through your word? Would you reveal to me through your spirit the lies I believe, the ways I'm living and walking in my own power? God's going to reveal those to you. And your choice is going to be, am I going to believe it? Am I going to walk in accordance with that? Or am I going to choose to walk in accordance with something else? As you and I engage in believing what God has said and believing what God has done in walking in him with our lives, we are rooted. We are rooted. We are built up in him. We are established in the faith. Re re remember, the Christian walk is not static. It is dynamic, right? It's dynamic in your life. In other words, your walk tomorrow will look different, should look different than your walk today. It means the things that God is working on in your life right now, guess what? He's going to continue to chip away those little bits of your life that, 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 that you and I walk in our own strength or we believe that lie. He's going to say, no, no, don't believe that. No, 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 trust me here. And he's going to call you to believe what he has said and believe what he has done. Our action is to, to receive that by faith and to walk in in light of his revealed truth. Frankly, that's why reading the scripture is so important for our daily lives because the more we read it, as we engage in it in a, in a right way, wanting to hear from God, not wanting to earn anything from God, but as we engage in it, we learn more about who we are. We learn more about who God is and our thoughts and our belief patterns are reframed in a way that is wholly helpful for our walk. What he's wanting to do is he's wanting to re to, to, to establish these believers. And the end of this establishing is um, overflowing with gratitude, right? So, so the being rooted and built up, being established in the faith, as you, just as you were taught, and so teaching and truth is a part of this, the result that comes from this is never a prideful result because it's God's grace that has met you and I here to give us a word about who he is and who we are and how we are to walk. As we close, I, I want to give you two different images, and I'm thankful to uh, the Life Center, which is a counseling ministry in Grand Rapids, that, um, that I was able to intern with last year. Um, they have two diagrams that I think are really helpful for us to see this visually. The first one is this. This is called the house that flesh built. Flesh here um, is self-sufficiency, right? It, it's anything that I do apart from God's power in my life. Uh, one writer, let me see if I can read it to you. Um, one writer described um, flesh as living in our own resources instead of Christ's. Um, here's this image, the house that flesh built. What happens is when we build our lives on lies, and these lies can be what other people think, what I've done in the past, or what others have done to me, or lies based upon Satan's accusations. When this becomes the bedrock of our life, what we do is we build belief systems according to what is rooted in us. These belief systems then lead to how we express that through behavior. This is really helpful, I think, just even as like parents and grandparents and stuff to understand that when we see behavioral patterns in our lives and in our kids' lives, um, there's always something behind it, right? I'm not asking you to become a psychoanalyst or anything like that, but what I'm asking you to do is consider behavioral patterns and just know that behind all the fruit of someone's life, there is a root many times that they're believing that is inaccurate. You want to help someone grow in Christ? As my friend Teresa says out at the Life Center, don't deal with the fruit, deal with the root. We spend a lot of our time doing sin management and fruit management at the top that we don't sometimes get to the core lies and deception that we believe in our life. Um, on the contrast or on, um, on the flip side of this, we have a house that the Lord wants to build in our lives. This comes down to when we have a biblical understanding of who God is, a relationship with God that is based by faith in Jesus Christ alone, 
and we understand our concept of God in a very helpful way. We know who we are in Christ. We have a knowledge of God, his word, and his love. And by the way, reshoring our foundation is a progressive lifelong action, (laughs) right? Um, None of us have this perfectly. We have everything we need in Christ, but none of us live this out perfectly. But the more we spend time in God's word, the more we spend time with believers, the, the more that we are encouraged and, and joined together in the love that God wants to build within the body, the more we learn who we are in Christ. The result of building a foundation, replacing the lies of this foundation with the truth of this foundation is that our belief systems change. When someone comes to know Christ, not everything is fixed in their life in a practical sense. I mean, their life becomes wholly new. And so they have a whole different way of living that they can now live from. But the process of sanctification or or becoming more holy in our actions, not in our position, but in our actions, is one of replacing the lies we believe in the foundation of our lives that then lead to belief system that is based on this instead of on this. And then what manifests as a result is behavioral patterns that are descriptive of what God would want for you in your life. Again, what matters in our life is how are we building this foundation? Is it built upon the deceptions of the world and the enemy? Is it built upon the self-deceptions of our own idea that we can walk in our own strength? Or is it built in the the complete sufficiency of who we are before God, who we are in Christ, knowledge of God, his word, and his love? When it's built on Christ, as we sometimes sing, on Christ the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Where's your foundation today? Your process or your experience with God revealing the lies that you believe in your life about him and about the world, those lies are going to be different than mine many times. But here's the amazing thing. God has given us his word to lead and direct us into what is true. That's why we got to be in the word. He's given us his spirit. John chapter eight, I think it is. Um, Jesus promises that he will send the spirit. And when the spirit comes, he will guide his people into all truth. You have one who intercedes for you. You have God himself. You have one who lives in you. If you are a follower of Jesus, God himself, you have the best teacher in the world. You have the best text in the world. What's our part? Our part is to yield our walk to God and say, all right, God, how are we going to walk today? Last story. Um, when we were in Arizona last week, we, as I said, we did a lot of hiking. And there was one hike that, that we did that had three different trailheads at the same parking lot. And so we had been on uh, a part of the hike on a different section of the trail, like five miles away. But we wanted to hike this one ridge. I can't remember what it's called right now. And um, so I, I pulled out my, my all trails map uh, on, on my phone, my GPS. And I went to the big like trailhead sign. I was like, I think this is where we're supposed to start. And, and I was like, so we go through the gate because we had a gate we had to shut behind us, cattle or something, I don't know. Um, and we started walking. And about a quarter mile into our walk, I'm looking at my GPS. I'm going, this is not right. <laughs> I'm like, we should be headed on, because I could see the trail, but I hadn't put together that there was actually three trailheads in the same parking lot. I was like, oh, it just connects up here. And so I just kind of went. I had a map. I had, a, um, I, I had my boots on. Don and I were getting ready to walk. Uh, so quarter mile in, I was like, nope, we got to turn around, which I hate to do because I hate to admit I'm wrong because I'm basically a guy. And, uh, and um, 
And so we walk back literally to the car. We walk through the other side, the long side of the park. Like we walked all the way through the park uh, or the parking lot. And we're getting through this, this gate. And actually there's um, on this trail, they say, because it's not a, like an, it's not a, a, a loop trail. They say, if you're going to hike this trail, you have to have two, day, or two gallons of water per person. You have to be ready to spend a night in the wilderness because it's barren in this area. And I'm like, okay, you know. But this lady yells after us. And it was clear that, yeah, I, at least I think she was a local. She seemed to know what she was doing. So we're walking through this gate and she yells after us knowing I think what trail we were going on because they really tried to discourage this trail uh, because you can get lost out there really easily. She's like, hey, do you guys know where you're going? And I was like, as a guy, and I'm like, yep, I'm good. <laughs> and I actually at that point did know where I was going. And, and I just didn't want, I want to save face as much as I could. But what struck me about that hike is I had my shoes, I had my backpack, I had my water, I even had a map. But just imagine what that hike would have been like starting out if I'd had a guide. If you have a guide with you, you can have the map. Huh. But if you have a guide, you get out of your car, you put your boots on, and you go to the sign, and he says, come, this way. The Lord Jesus wants to be your guide today. He wants to be your guide. The question is, will you yield to him as your guide? Our Father and our King, in this walk that we call the Christian life, I thank you that you have given us yourself as a guide. I thank you, Lord, that you have not left us as orphans. You have not left us alone. And even, God, in the days that we feel alone, the days we have nowhere to turn, would you just remind us that in those moments and in every moment, we are dependent upon you. And actually, being dependent upon you is the absolute best place for us to be. But God, even as we learn to be dependent upon you, even as we hear your truth, would you help us to believe it and to walk in light of the truth. God, you've called us to follow you. And right now, God, I, I yield my way for your way. We yield our way for your way. And God, your ways we may not always understand. We may think the map is taking us to a different point in the trail. And yet, God, help us to trust the clear revealed leading of your word and your spirit today. And even, and perhaps especially when it doesn't make sense, God, help us to walk in you. Help us to lean not on our own understanding, but to in all our ways acknowledge you, that you may be our guide and direct our paths. We thank you for being a good shepherd. A shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And Lord, I pray for, for anyone in, in our hearing today who is not a follower of Jesus yet, who is still trying to figure out life in their own strength, that they would come to the end of themselves today and recognize that the only way to life is through Jesus. There's no other path. There's no other way. God, may they find life in your death and in your resurrection. Thank you for being our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.